The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, June 24th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'll be honest with you. I initially got interested in the CBS interview of Kamala Harris because I heard a snippet and I was surprised. Here... You'll hear what I hear as we join Harris mid-answer. It cannot be the goal to, to, to express one's ego and to um, engage in gamesmanship without much serious regard to the consequence. And I think that's what we've seen in this president. So who's our greatest global foe? Whoa! And I'm thinking they got Charlie Rangel to do an interview with Kamala Harris. That's pretty cool. Or maybe it was Harvey Firestein. Maybe it was Bobby Slayton, the pit bull of comedy. President is set to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin at the G20. Would you meet with him if you're president? Oh, that is Ed O'Keefe. That is CBS political correspondent Ed O'Keefe. I love Ed O'Keefe. I sympathize with his scratchy throat he powered through. It's a weird thing about laryngitis, though. I mean, right now I have what may be a broken finger. I'm a hero. I think everyone in the office just looks at me, thinks of me as a hero. But if I had laryngitis and was talking into the microphone, a good percentage of the audience would say, Mike, you're not a hero. You're just really, really agitating me with your voice. Not me with Ed. That's not how I think of Ed. I thought that he was a powerful man to power through, and I focused on the content, not the gravel. You you take your prosecutorial record against the push in your party for criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of concern among, especially more liberal and younger Mm -hmm. parts of the party. You may not be the best person to do that, given that you were implementing those tough on crime initiatives as a prosecutor, can they trust you to do that? Well, here's the thing. When I became a prosecutor and when I was elected district attorney and also attorney general of California, I implemented some of the most significant reforms to date during those years that had been implemented. Like I said, I, I created one of the first reentry initiatives that became a model. It was designated as a model in the United States for what law enforcement should do to be, as I call it, smart on crime. I was the first in the nation leading the State Department of Justice in California, which, by the way, is the second largest Department of Justice in the United States, to require my agents to wear body cameras. I created, as Attorney General, the first in the nation implicit bias and procedural justice training for law enforcement knowing that that had to be addressed, which is the implicit bias that exists in law enforcement and the potentially lethal outcomes that occur from that. So the concerns are overblown? The concerns are overblown. Yes. No question. I do not believe they are. Of the three initiatives she cited, the first two are fine and necessary, but implicit bias training among police officers is unproven. And this is crucial. Even when police or any human being can identify implicit bias. Sometimes you can. There is really little evidence that it actually leads to a change in explicit bias or behavior. Those things are much more important to address when you have a command and control structure like a police force. Just go to the explicit bias and the actual behavior. But I think a good follow-up could have been, okay, that's fine, Senator. But 538 recently surveyed the entire Democratic field. And of the 16 candidates who answered their question, you were the only one to answer no to the question, should cash bail be eliminated at all levels of government? The only one. 
This, by the way, is consistent with Kamala Harris's position while she was a prosecutor. But you have to ask, is consistency better than taking a sledgehammer to this antiquated form of non-justice? Eliminating cash bail has a demonstrable and a knowable effect on the justice system, whereas an anti-implicit bias initiative is trendy but extremely speculative. Kamala Harris has a lot of strength as a communicator and a prosecutor, but she has so far escaped specific scrutiny on this issue. I would like for her to answer these questions. Luckily, in the upcoming debate, she will have an average of 8 minutes, 15 seconds to provide answers. On the show today, I spiel about, it's a little bit of a weird spiel. It's an interview with a short bit of analysis about a big story. But the thing is, the big story is in the news. It's certainly a newsworthy story. It's about the mayoral election in Istanbul. But to get there, I had to kind of work through a lot of internal pressure about covering everything Trump. Trump's speeches or Trump's aborted bombing of Iran or the alleged rapes against Trump. Sometimes we've just got to go non-Trump. But first, strap in for some hot ombudsman talk. Yes, the U.S. news media has largely jettisoned the institution of the ombudsman. There's only one news organization that still employs an ombudsman or public editor, and that institution is, of course, Cat Fancy. No, it's NPR. The publisher of the New York Times argued in eliminating the ombudsman that Twitter keeps us honest. We don't need someone in-house to do that job. So Kyle Pope, the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, said, well, if you guys... MSNBC, CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, if you guys won't hire a public editor, we'll hire one for you. Spy did a similar thing about 30 years ago. They published letters to the editor of The New Yorker because The New Yorker wasn't doing it. But that was 30 years ago. Does modern media still need ombudsing? And if it does, is this the way to do it? We'll come up with all the definitive answers next. Ombudsman is a Scandinavian term, a Swedish term, and it refers to a person within an organization who uh, brings about accountability, the public-facing officer who can interact with members of the public and also members of the organization. In the field of journalism, it's come to mean something like a public editor, the person who's working at the paper or the news organization who you as the outraged or just confused reader can bring complaints to, and then the public editor will talk to the person who wrote the story and then write up a column explaining why they use the phrase disputed territories instead of occupied territories. Or that's how it's supposed to be. In America, there's one public editor left. She works at NPR. The entire institution of the ombudsman or public editor has been swept away because of a lot of things. Enter CJR, the Columbia Journalism Review, where Kyle Pope, the editor of that august institution, has said, if these institutions, if these media organizations won't provide a public editor, damn it, I will. He's gone out. He's hired four journalists to essentially ombud these organizations. Hey, Kyle, how are you? I'm good. You know, you know a lot about the etymology of that word. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. I like uh, Scandinavian etymologies. There you go. Uh, it's, well, it came up because um, females were being appointed to the job, and the question was, should it be an right. ombudswoman? And they would, they would rightly say upon doing the work, actually, no, it's not really. The man part of it isn't, doesn't have to be gendered. So which four organizations and why those? So we're doing the um, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and MSNBC. 
the big debate we had internally was why not Fox, um, which is the most watched Crossing my favorite cable, question off the cable list. Network. Yeah. I, I frankly don't think Fox is an honest broker in journalism. I don't think they really take it seriously. Um, they, have a, they have a different agenda, and it's not a journalistic agenda. And a lot's been written about them, and I just thought those columns are going to be boring. I mean, it's going to be the same thing week after week after week, and it's a little bit like shooting fish. I mean, I could tell you with – I could write that. Right mm-hmm. now, we could do it together. Right. And we know what it's going to say. And they're not going to engage with it. Their audience isn't going to engage with it. So I didn't really see the point. I mean, then there are other places like, you know, the Wall Street Journal. Why not them? Why not NPR? They, you mentioned they have one. They have one. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, also, we don't have endless pots of money. So we just started with those four. Yeah. Why, other than a clever branding practice, why are these people ombudsmen or public editors and not just outside critics with a newspaper or a cable network as their beat? Well, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that we were that it's a bit of a stunt, right? Yeah, um, I'm glad you admitted that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's what it is. But it's you know, that's what it. We are so, so one of the things that we're definitely trying to make a comment on the lack of public editors by hiring these public editors. I mean, I love all the people who are like, this isn't staying true to the public editor sort of mission, and we're not sort of with upholding the public editor sort of thing, and. There aren't any. Yeah. Like, what are we protecting here? Right. We're, we're protecting an institution that's dead. Right. So, I mean, we look, I would love it. You're I not mean, a real dodo bird. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would love if the outcome of this is the Times and MSNBC and the Washington Post and CNN saying, you know what? You, you've made your point. We're going to hire him. We'd be like, great. We're done. That was cool. Let's move on. I mean, I, I, I think it would be great. I don't think they're going to do that. In fact, since we announced this— A.G. Salzberger, who's the publisher of the Times, basically doubled down. He also called it a bit of a stunt, but then he then he sort of backtracked and said, "Well, we actually think it's valuable." And but then he doubled down on this argument, which I just don't think holds water, which is the internet is a, is already a public editor mm-hmm. that you know any, that we have this enormous numbers of people who everything that we every everything we do they're commenting on Twitter and. And I, I just don't – I don't know what version of Twitter he's reading because my version is people's attention span is about 10 seconds long. Yeah. They swarm in. They swarm out. There's not a lot of thoughtful sort of discussion about what are they doing? How could they be doing? There's a lot of gotcha like yeah. they screwed this up yeah. or this is outrageous. But there's not a lot of more in-depth thinking, which is what we want to do. So I think, I think we, were, we were definitely trying to make a point. Um, but I think, you know, and we've published one piece and I've seen versions of, of the other pieces that are coming in. And, you know, frankly, I think they're I think they're good and I think they're on topics that we need to be probing in more detail, especially in this moment of journalism's history. So my cards on the table are this. I thought the New York Times has had two great ombudsmen, Dan Okrant and Margaret Sullivan. Yeah, I agree. F- full stop. I think that in the entire rest of the media, I only ever saw one really good ombudsman, and that was the uh, boss, I think it was at the Washington Post and PBS. He said things that were interesting. He understood how the news worked. I worked at NPR for years with ombudsmen, and they were uniformly terrible. They didn't understand the business. They would, I'll I'll give you a couple examples. Someone would write in and say, you did a newscast item 
about the man who murdered the guard at the Holocaust Museum, and you mentioned the man who was sentenced, the murderer, but you didn't mention the guard's name. And the ombudsman said, yes, we should mention the guard's name. Well, that's easy to say, but you have 45 seconds to do a spot. And in every spot, if you're by decree mentioning the guard's name, it's a little thing, but it just to me showed that she didn't understand the exigencies of what we're doing. And then there was this whole this whole thing, this is a little too much about NPR, but uh, Laura Sullivan did this huge reporting on Native American populations, and our ombudsman went back and re-reported the story and found nothing. She did nothing wrong and used all his time and resources, and it was a disaster. Yeah. And the resources spent on those ombudsmen, which sometimes were just, look, we want to... F- Ease, we want to ease this guy out of the actual job he has, so let's give him the ombudsman job. It was just consistently pointless and a waste of resources. Right. So I'm pretty much against the institution. Just that I've seen 30 of them in America and three have been good. Right. So I, I don't disagree with you. So why not try somebody like CJR as an outside yeah, approach? Because I, I'd like the people to get their calls returned. That's yeah, why. I mean, we, we, we don't do too badly on that front. I mean... Um, in the first one, Emily, Emily... What's her last name? Tampkin. Emily Tampkin, uh, who's your CNN ombudsman Correct. slash public editor. She didn't get her... She wrote about how Chris Cuomo books administration officials or adjacent officials, and it's kind of pointless. Right. She didn't get any calls returned, but right. it, was a, it was a fine... Good points in a fine column. Yeah. It was um, fun. It was a good read. Yep. And, um, and yeah, they didn't return. Get the return calls they didn't return calls on that. I, I I don't think that that would be a blanket policy for them. I think it's going to depend on the story, right? And I think it's also. I mean, you know, I've heard from we didn't we didn't call any of them and say, hey, we're going to do that. Will you guys play? Right. That, that wasn't the point. I mean, I don't I don't think that would that would set sets it up right. You know, and I, I think I can, I can I know a little bit about the culture of the, each of those places because we cover them every day, and I can sort of I, I think I can predict who's going to be cooperative and who's not. But I could be wrong, and I think it definitely depends on the story. I mean, we've already had you know one of one of them has sort of like been grumbling about the, just the whole idea, like why why are you, you know we're not quite convinced. Uh, I mean, they're like we're not quite convinced we're going to do this. I'm like well. You don't have to do anything. We're the one that are, we're the one that's doing it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I think it's important. I do think it's important that they that they answer this that they answer these questions, right? And I do think over time, if they just sort of push this away, these columns are going to be less effective. Mm-hmm. I. I just I don't see that with our other reporting at CJR. I th- I think that they tend to take us seriously and they tend to engage with us. Yeah. I don't know why they would carve this out as as unique. And I actually you know I th- I think that the comments that Sulzberger, for instance, have made I think it was good. I mean he, it's like it's on his radar. He's like yeah well, we'll see. Okay, um, so he's one who might play. I imagine. Yeah. yeah. So this maybe goes to the greater uh, question about CJR and your whole existence, but. <laughs> It's Friday, so it's a good yeah, day to discuss this. I do wonder about let us still hold on to this old idea of establishment journalism, and this is the important thing, and we're going to nudge them to a greater correctness. And maybe we will, and maybe we won't, but we'll all be part of this civic experiment. And that seems great and seems very important circa, you know, 1980 to 2002 or something. But, I mean, how relevant is it, this experiment, maybe CJR's experiment overall, to the actual media world we're living in? I mean, I'm convinced that, um, especially, I mean, I'm, 
I, and my answer today is different than it would have been before Election Day. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen since the election of Trump the importance of the role of the press in a way that we didn't realize before or we didn't think about before. But but I think if what you're saying is like why focus on these four basically East Coast news organizations when that's not how most Americans get their information, I think that's right. I think that's a good point. You know, we've tried to like devote a lot more attention to local TV, local radio. And I think and, – and the other thing we've done is we've adopted Facebook and Twitter as, a, as kind of central to our coverage area. So that's where most people get their information and we treat them like journalistic organizations even though they don't treat them they – don't, they don't like to say that that's what they are. I mean what, what I – the way I define the job is – and the way I th- – and the reason I think this is important is I define it as like how do you – how we're in the business of writing about how you know what you know. Yes. How do you get information? Right. How and who and who's who, the you though? Who everybody? I mean, yeah. everybody. How does my mom get information? And does she know that Facebook actually doesn't have a newsroom and produce all these stories? Does she know where this stuff comes from? You know, who's making sort of editorial decisions on you know objectionable, like nasty stuff and why that's on or why that's not on and I don't know I think those are all I think those are important questions and I think if you're if you're asking me like why do we need some sort of professorial pieces on you know the foreign policy coverage at the times or the post we don't but I think you know we 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 for instance have more readers in California than we do in New York and those people are reading us because they want to know about Facebook and Twitter and how they interact with journalism. We've got a lot of in- international readers because the issues that we're facing here about disinformation and misinformation and about the wipeout of local news and about sort of authoritarian regimes sort of spreading misinformation, that's – it's so fascinating to me. Like that's happening exactly at the same time. In pretty much every corner of the globe, it's hap- it's happening right now everywhere. We're just we're in the middle of our own version of it. But if you talk to people about Modi in India or Bolsonaro in Brazil or Abe in Japan, I mean, they 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 tell you exactly the same story, yeah. And they're exact worried about the exact same thing. So I I don't think about this as even though we have journalism in our name. I mean, this is just about like where we're getting information and who's controlling it and. Do we know what we need to know about it? And, and I think one of the things that's the, – the reason that that's really – it's important to keep that in perspective is because the garbage that we're seeing – a lot of the garbage information that we're seeing is – I mean all, to, to most news consumers, it's all one thing. It's all just what showed up on WhatsApp or Facebook or Twitter or right. whatever. And so – the the sort of real journalism, however you define that, is in the in that soup, and so all of that stuff I think is devaluing real journalism. So one of the one of the things to, for that we're thinking about is like how do real ju- news organizations sort of differentiate themselves, and that differentiation I think is really important because I actually believe that that knowing what's real and what's not real. It's an important thing for consumers to sort of start to take responsibility for. 
Kyle Pope is the editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks a lot. And now the spiel. Last week, Donald Trump almost bombed Iran. His last-minute declination was reported out in full on the front page of the New York Times. It was also revealed that the man he had nominated for Secretary of Defense, that man's son, eight years ago, beat his mother with a baseball bat, leaving her lying in a pool of her own blood. The father, then VP of Boeing, interceded to hole up with the son for four days in order to negotiate the son's surrender. The mother was hospitalized with a skull fracture. The son was released without serving time so as not to derail his promising baseball career. The father, again, the acting secretary of defense, wrote a memo at the time justifying his son's baseball bat to the skull as an act of self-defense against the aggression of three hours of maternal harassment. Oh, we along with all the members of the Armed Services Committee, just learned about all this last week, and the senators were kind of shocked they didn't have this info when they voted to confirm Patrick Shanahan as Deputy Secretary of Defense. Also, the president was accused of rape. His high-profile accuser, E. Jean Carroll, put her name to it with detailed recollections. I didn't hear that mentioned in any of the Sunday shows. To be fair, almost two days had passed since New York Magazine broke the story. Two days. Also horrific conditions at the border, unsettled tariff disputes with China and Mexico, and some people say the president is doing the next thing to distract us from the last thing. Whereas other people say the president isn't really that linear. He operates more on a miasmic level. He dominates the ether, and in doing so, he wins the debate. Others will find fault with the media for not doing more on the above stories. Perhaps you could tell I was kind of shocked at the lack of play the Patrick Shanahan story got. Because attention must be paid. And yet think of the converse argument. The exigencies of constant Trump coverage do come at a cost. All of the shocking statements and acts and revelations push off the front page and push out of the national mind share stories from outside of Washington, from a little bit off the news cycle, or even from out of the country. I agree with that complaint. I sympathize with it. I live with it. What should I do? I have a show where I could talk about whatever I want. It's true. I did not talk about the president's so-called presidential kickoff. That clearly was something to skip. If the president had said something different from what he always says, I probably would have commented on it if it was worthy of comment. But it turns out the whole rally was lock her up and make America great, all that garbage. But it is hard. It is hard to be a member of the media When the president says crazy shit, you want to cover the crazy shit, but at what costs? He certainly says a lot of crazy and outrageous and galling things. I definitely think it should be covered in some way, in some place, sometimes in this place. But we also have to cover the other events in the world. Even ones that are important, just because they are important, not because they are important vis-a-vis Donald J. Trump. So all I can do is cover those issues. And so I will do so now. Over the weekend, Istanbul reran its mayoral election. The opposition party candidate, Ekrem Imamoglu, had already won, but the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, did not like that the opposition candidate won. 
So Erdogan and his backers created some phony irregularities and reran the election. And while he was doing that, Erdogan said, whoever wins Istanbul wins Turkey. Well, if that's true, then a big change is afoot because it was a landslide and a rebuke to the blustering strongman of the Bosporus. Turkey is a NATO country whose combination of rash acts, anti-democratic tendencies, and potentially volatile international allegiances should be very worrying to everyone in the West, to say nothing of how worrying it is that Erdogan suppresses the Turkish people. So joining me now with much insight is Jack Fairweather. He was an Istanbul-based bureau chief for Bloomberg for many years. And Jack, my first question is, why did Erdogan let the opposition party win the position of mayor of Istanbul? That's a great question, Mike. I think Erdogan thought he would win. Mm -hmm. And that gets to the heart of his hubris and I think some of the... Some of the delight that Istanbul watchers have in in watching the victory of Imamoglu um, last night is he is is Erdogan popular or less popular in the cities than he is in the countryside? What's his what's his popularity? Yeah, his base has always been in in the east and in in rural areas and in some of the sort of poorer segments of Istanbul. Um, so the this would be the the building base for the opposition if they ever hope to reclaim power. And so a strong, strong man. I couldn't imagine Putin letting something like this happen is where my next question is going. How strong is he if he allows this to happen? Well, look, he's still, you know, the supreme ruler of of Turkey. Um, I think he has invested, however, in the belief that he is the, the voice of the people and in their sort of democratic democratic mandate the elections bring. Um, I think that while this is a great victory for Turkish democracy. The real test will come, of course, in the next set of elections and whether or not Erdogan sees the writing on the wall and and begins to panic. Up until now, for the last 15 years, he's been reigning ascendant in the polls. So this is the first setback and the first time that he will question democracy because it's not giving what he wants. Mm -hmm. Is it really truly a democratic country? It has sliding scales on the freedom of the press, on the freedom of the courts, um, you know, all of the markers by which we judge whether a country is democratic or not. But when it comes to the polls, as last night shows, people do still get to have a ballot that can count. And I think there are forces in Turkey that go beyond government control media and government appointees of that, you know, there's a groundswell of opinion that's turning against Erdogan. So um, I think um, many watchers believe that this could be a turning point for him. From what I understand, he's terribly mismanaged the economy in ways that really confounded economists, you know, making some decisions that uh, are almost inexplicable. Did that play into the election? The lira has slid from, you know, almost one and a half to two to the dollar to five or six. Yeah. So and it was one of the least valuable currencies for a long, long time. It was. To and, begin with. But yeah. anyone who is, you know, buying anything from outside is struggling. Food prices in the markets are th- through the roof. You know, the economy is in, in dire straits and that's, you know, catching up. Jack Fairweather was uh, the Middle East correspondent and editor for Bloomberg up until recently. And soon on this program, we'll be talking to him about his new book, The Volunteer. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Mike.
And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname produced the gist. They cut their teeth working inside Willy Wonka's chocolate factory as liaisons between the chocolate-consuming public and Oompa Loompas. Sadly, the job of um yumsman was cut after that gloop kid clogged the pipe. Let me tell you what's going on on What Next. I'll call it our sister podcast. On today's show, former U.S. Ambassador Wendy Sherman talked to Mary Harris about developments in Iran. Listen to What Next every morning around 6 a.m. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast. She worked for years in the dairy industry, chewing over complaints from the public and the bovine workforce. The ombudsman position was eliminated after an investigation found someone was skimming from the top. You'd have thought the ombudsman could make them whole, but no. The gist. I used to work for a family who hired me as an outside party to oversee disputes. Can't get into too much specifics, but I will tell you that some of the disputes concerned who sings harmony and who plays mandolin on this track. Should we market ourselves as a country or country western duo? Whose long strand of red hair was found in the margarine? Still, whenever I write my old job title, I'm Judsman, on resumes, it's greeted with talk of how much they like the 40-year-old virgin. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.